afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Notre Dame Stadium. Zivikowski trying to get to the outside. He has blockers in front. Time for Zivikowski. Belong to beat. Shakes it off. To the five and touchdown. And now it is down. It is over. And the Irish have knocked off number one Clemson. Brady Quinn looking. Pump fakes. He rolls to the near side. Throws it. It's caught by Samaja. Inside the 20. Inside the 10. He's going in. Notre Dame has scored. Jones is the back. He's got it again. And Jones a letter room. Tony Jones makes a cut. Gets a block. And scores. Is that the play that will seal the playoff bid for Fighting Irish? What's up? Welcome to Central Saturday Irish, and thanks for joining us for our last game recap of the 2021 Notre Dame football season. I'm Tyler Wojak, and with me as always is Luke Smith, and we're here to talk about another postseason loss for the Fighting Irish. Uh, Luke, I realized right before we started taping, since we started doing these publicly, Notre Dame has a 21-4 and record. Three of those losses came after the regular season. I'm starting to notice a trend here, um, maybe one that's plagued the program for over a decade. But anyway, I'm sure you guys Just one decade? Game. Yeah, maybe a two or three. Um, you guys watched the game. Notre Dame blew a 20-point lead to the Oklahoma State Cowboys and lost by a score of 37-35. to 35. It was the biggest comeback in school history for Oklahoma State. It was the biggest comeback in Fiesta Bowl history as well. And it was Notre Dame's largest blown lead since they let Tennessee come back from a 31-7 to 7 deficit way back in 1991. Um, not really yeah. the historical company you want to be in. After a 30-day stretch when everything seemed to go right for Notre Dame, it all went wrong for 30 straight minutes of football in the second half. And that brings us to where we are now. Um, We'll share our reactions from Saturday, go over what we liked and didn't like, and then we got a bunch of news and notes to get to that have come out since the end of that game, and we'll start to look ahead a little bit to the future. Um, But Smith, you traveled to Glendale and had to watch this all unfold in person. Um, I know that sucked. I've been there. But uh, has it worn off a bit now that a couple days have passed? Before I get into that, I just realized that the uh, the Tennessee game you mentioned, that's definitely the game that my parents always talked about growing up and how Rocky Top was played incessantly because that makes sense if you score like, you know, 38 unanswered. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, so I'll argue that my lift ride to Glendale from Scottsdale Saturday morning was a, a tremendous foreshadowing of, of the game to come. Uh, <clears throat> I got in my lift. First thing the driver told us was that we didn't have to wear masks. And honestly, this is great news because with the traffic, it was about an hour drive from Scottsdale to Glendale. Of course, the ride eventually went downhill. Uh, Guy was a little bit loony, told us he had done time in prison for destroying (laughs) bank property after the bank refused to give him a loan. He told us that the government had taken all of his bank accounts, his truck, and property because of, quote-unquote, Obama's birth certificate fiasco. Uh, And then we were stuck with the guy for another slow 30 minutes. Pretty similar to that second half. I mean, we've never really started a game out like that, getting up to a big lead in a big game. Uh, As you will recall, I picked a blowout in the uh, prediction or in the preview pod, and you actually texted me, hey, your, your blowout pick is looking pretty good, and I felt pretty good. Then, of course, that uh, our old friend, the touchdown before half hit us, which was a problem that plagued us all year all year on defense. And then nothing went right. Um, I still have kind of had some trouble processing it. Like, I was so far ahead of myself that um, I actually had a buddy who I grew up with. His family lives in Arizona now, and they were at the game. And I was trying to meet up with him, and I told him, like, 
when we went up, I don't know, 21-7, 28-7. Yeah, I'll, I'll meet you at the end of the third quarter in the concourse for a beer. Like, this will be great. And then, of course, I think we were down after the third quarter, or it was at least 28-20-28, so 28-28. And I was like, hey, uh, I got some extra sheets by me. Like, why don't you just come down and sit by me? And I honestly feel terrible because I think I said about five words to the kid because I was just so pissed off about what was happening on in the game. So didn't quite to have the the great reunion that I was looking for. And uh, I'll get that at a, at a later date, which is probably a larger issue that this this thing just impacts me way too much or way more than it should. But I don't know, man, just like I, I'm really I'm over it, but um, it's just an annoying one. Like, yeah. we're never going to get over this hump. I still think Spencer Sanders kind of stinks. Like, he just he just chucked up some prayers, and our secondary was atrocious. Um, I don't know, just a really sad second-half performance. I, I just, like, 28-7. Like you said, we've never seen it before in our lifetimes, really. So That's the thing is I've been trying to equate it. There's to no something. comparison. There isn't, no. Yeah. Like, no. For all of Brian Kelly's faults in big games, usually we're just getting boat raced from the start. We never really <laughs> yeah. had an opportunity to blow a lead because we never had one. So I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just pointing out that that's how it's been. And I don't remember blowing a lead this big. Like, clearly it hasn't happened to this magnitude. We said that it's the largest blown lead since 1991. So in our lifetimes, though, I can't really think of one. Nothing jumps to my mind. But, yeah, it's just – it's really just bitter. Um there's really no positive way to spin it. I, now, I'm not saying that like Notre Dame can't learn from this and use this as a motivational tool throughout the offseason because I think they can and will do that. But to say that Notre Dame is better off for this is just a little bit misplaced to me. Um, it yeah. sucks. Like, plain and simple, it sucks. I know you were really hard on Spencer Sanders before the game. I'm not even saying he's a good or even great quarterback at all, but we made him look like a Heisman contender in that second it's a half. joke. It's an absolute joke. He finished 34-51, 371 yards to the air with four touchdowns and no picks. And this is a guy who is turnover prone all season long. I mean, we talked about it in the preview. That's one area we thought Notre Dame could definitely exploit. And then he was their leading rusher on the ground. He had 125 yards rushing, and he just caused nightmares for the defense all game. There's a bunch of different things we can dissect about what, like what went wrong, why it went wrong. Um, and a bunch of other ways to look at it. But just simply put, it just sucks. Yeah, it really just did kind of feel like, I mean, I know we hadn't blown a lead like that ever in our lifetime, but it felt like kind of just like a Notre Dame game of old um, in that the defense couldn't tackle anybody, couldn't stop anybody. You have another coach, Mike Gundy, this time saying, this is easily the biggest win in program history. I I got some flashbacks to like Tulsa in that one. Just like, I mean, we should never lose to Oklahoma State. I I know that people keep trying to say they're very talented. Like, I I just, I don't want to give them any credit. I really don't. (laughs) Like, yes, they obviously took advantage of some things in Notre Dame some deficiencies Notre Dame had, but like that, that wasn't a very good team. I'm sorry. They weren't. And maybe Notre Dame wasn't either, but that wasn't a very good team. They just lost to. That's what I was going to say. I think this isn't an, an indictment on the future of the program and uh, Marcus Freeman or anything about the future. None of it is really impacted by this outcome. However, I do think it was an indictment on this year's team. Um, I just don't think they were as good as we thought they were. They have an 11, one record. I don't even want to say that they overachieved because I think they beat, every team that they were supposed to be like every win they had, they were better than that team. But as Oklahoma state started marching down the field there in the first drive, of the second half, 12 plays, 
87 yards, and they did it with such ease. You could feel all of the momentum from the first half just being wiped away, and you realize, oh, God, Notre Dame's going to be in a dogfight here. And then the offense comes out, immediately goes three and out on the ensuing possession. And at that point on, to me at least, Oklahoma State's comeback just felt inevitable. You're like, all right, when is this going to be tied? Like, how soon is it going to be? How much time is Notre Dame going to have to come back? And from that point on, it was just death by a thousand paper cuts. A couple days have passed here. I'm sort of in the boat where, like, you know that the day after a Notre Dame loss, you legitimately feel hungover from it, just, like, sits with you, and you just have this unpleasant feeling in your stomach all day? I texted you yesterday. There is no worse feeling in the world than getting back to Chicago after a postseason Notre Dame loss. You're sitting at the Curb at O'Hare. It's, like, eight degrees out, and you're (laughs) waiting for an Uber to come pick you up. Like, it is just, this is hell. Like, I got to sit with this feeling for nine months, and this is hell. And it's cyclical. It's just every year yeah. on the dot, like, let's do it like again. Like, you have that internal conversation, like, why do I do this to myself? It's 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 truly not healthy. It really no. isn't. Um, it's especially so, not healthy. Yeah, and at least, like, at least I recognize that. I, I guess I'm, I'm happy about that. Um, I don't know. Like, jeez. Uh, it's just... Um, yeah, it's, it's really disappointing. And, like, I kind of... I don't know. This is just a thought I had, like, from a record perspective, maybe Notre Dame did overachieve this year. From a wins perspective, that said, they beat everybody they should have beat. But maybe, like, does this also help to explain kind of like some of Brian Kelly and like his willingness to to leave? I mean, we talked about it a little bit. I felt like at different points he was just completely worn out by this team, and like winning was hard. Was more like winning was a chore. Like it was really hard. It wore on him, and I think he probably recognized some of the you know depth deficiencies at receiver, cornerback. Obviously, they're recruiting really well, but like maybe that's an instance where he's like, I'm not ready to just kind of like have to reboot these things again. Like, it's not a total reboot. I don't want to say that, but it's definitely going to take some effort. And I wonder if that plays into that at all. Like, you're just a little bit worn out because it was an effort to get to 11 wins. It was. And I, I see, I see your point. And it's hard to look at this game and given all of, the circumstances Notre Dame was dealing with, you know, they're obviously out their best player on offense and defense without Kyron Williams and Kyle Hamilton, but a bunch of other injuries that had sort of mounted over the course of the year that Notre Dame was able to sort of get by without that specific or the culmination of these injuries playing a significant factor, at least in terms of wins and losses, all of them came together in this one. And you're like, Oh yeah, it would have been really nice to have Avery Davis, Joe Wilkins, mm-hmm. Marissa Leofau, um, I'm probably missing a few guys because there have been so many. But all of that, it was all in clear as day. Wow, Notre Dame has some real issues here, and we'll get to all of them here in a bit. Um, and yeah, and I think in the short term, it sort of highlighted like, wow, Notre Dame's lack of depth at receiver, something we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, is a very clear issue. It reared its ugly head in this one because like those poor Notre Dame receivers, like Braden Lindsay especially, just had to run go route after go route, come yeah. back, get held, and then just do it again. And that's just not sustainable through the course of that game. I mean, Austin played 86 snaps out of 91. Yeah, he did. And, that <laughs> and I think Mayer, Mayer, played, Mayer, 91. Mayer played 91. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lindsay played 77. Um, yeah. Lorenzo I mean, that's – there were so many times, and I, I don't mean anything against Matt Salerno, but he was on the field – Way too often for a fiesta ball. Yeah. Like and he, like he's just a decoy at that. He's not even a yeah. decoy. He's just he's just a body. Like that that's what it is. So I, I don't know. These are challenges that we all knew about and 
again, we sort of gloss over because Notre Dame was 11-1. And Notre Dame was up 28-7 to despite all of these things. So, like, this right. isn't an excuse for them losing. Or blowing a 21-point lead is inexcusable in any circumstance, even despite all the injuries I just mentioned. But it is sort of a different way to look at it in the aftermath. You're like, okay, yeah, um, if Notre Dame was fully healthy and Oklahoma State was fully healthy, I think Notre Dame wins that game probably by more than a touchdown. But, you know, this is what happened. And now going into the offseason, I think those issues that Notre Dame saw in this game, it's not like they're just going away. It's not like we have a great recruiting class of receivers coming in or and it's going to be pretty hard to just pick DBs off in the portal. So these problems are going to persist. And now Marcus Freeman is going to have to look at them. And it looks like some of the staff is coming together now. So obviously he has to get that out of the way. But then from just a roster and personnel standpoint, like there are some immediate issues that need to be resolved. Without a doubt. And I think there are a couple of interesting potential solutions out there. There's the safety from Northwestern that I would expect Notre Dame to try to get involved with, um, obviously. Uh, but yeah, they don't have, obviously we talked about this a little bit, they don't have the same amount of options that everybody else does in the portal just because of how difficult it is <clears throat> to qualify academically in Notre Dame as a, as an undergrad and not a graduate transfer. But there are definitely some some areas of need there. And uh, I, I know like at receiver what they offered a Utah commit in the 2022 class a couple days ago too. probably try to flip him. Um, so I don't know, but, but yeah, there's definitely some areas of need there. Yeah. You mentioned undergraduate transfers, like speaking from personal experience, I transferred to Notre Dame from Holy Cross after freshman year, I mentioned that on the podcast before, but what I haven't really mentioned is sort of the process and in getting into Notre Dame. I looked at a few different schools um, because if, you know, I didn't get into Notre Dame after my freshman year at Holy Cross. I wasn't going to stay there. So I was looking Wait, you didn't want to stay there? <laughs> shocking as it may be, um, Holy Cross wasn't the school for me. So I looked at a few other schools, and I was blown away at how much easier the process was. Just the application process alone for Notre Dame took me twice as long as, like, two or three of the other schools combined. And some of them were pretty good schools. And Notre Dame just has very strict requirements for transfers. The first year studies program, that in itself is a big hindrance. Like I remember asking the admissions counselor at Notre Dame, like after I had been denied, which school would give me, you know, the best chance to transfer into Notre Dame. At the time, I was just looking at going to the University of Kentucky or Holy Cross. And they can't say directly and now, obviously, the University of Kentucky, if you get a degree from there as opposed to a degree from Holy Cross, like the degree at Kentucky is probably better for your future. But in terms of transferring to Notre Dame, they basically said that going to Holy Cross would give me a better chance because Holy Cross does the first year of studies program. It'd be a lot easier to transfer the credits because if you go to a state school, it's a lot more difficult. And obviously, I'm not a football player, and they can probably find some leeway to get some guys in. But I'm just saying that, like, the restrictions alone, they can only bend the rules so much. And if Notre Dame is going to dip into the portal, it's probably going to have to be a graduate transfer. If they do get an undergrad transfer, great. They'd probably have to be a rising sophomore. I don't really see any case how they could get, like, a rising junior or certainly not a rising senior, um, just given the restrictions I just mentioned. But it's going to be something to follow for Notre Dame. It's going to be something Marcus Freeman is going to have to deal with. And, um We'll see what happens, but it's definitely going to have a big impact on the 2022 season and looking forward beyond that as well. Without a doubt. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's definitely some areas in need there. I hope that they resolve them sooner rather than later. 
Yeah. All right, let's go to what we did like from the game. Um, I think there were some really good things, especially on the offensive side in the first half. I'll go first here. I thought the reemergence of Chris Tyree was really great to see and also very encouraging looking ahead to next season. We already said before this, like the one positive about Kyron Williams' decision to opt out of the bowl game was that it meant more opportunities for Tyree and Logan Diggs to showcase their skills a little bit. Um, although Diggs probably had the worst game of his young career, I think Chris Tyree had the best game of his career, despite the fact that I think he only had 18 yards on the ground. Um, He's been dealing with injuries all season. That nagging turf toe injury really sort of plagued him. Um, But he played like the game breaker we'd all hoped he would be when he was a five-star recruit. Um, And he really showcased his ability as a pass catcher. He had over 100 receiving yards in the first half. Now, granted, 53 came on one play. But if he could stay healthy... And Diggs continues to improve, and hopefully we see a little bit more Audric uh, Estimate next year as well. The one-two is a pretty lethal combination as is, and if Estimate comes around, like that's a three-headed monster plus Buckner. So you know that's one good thing, I guess. No, I, I was very impressed. I, I would totally agree. I think he that was the best game of his career to date, and hopefully, just gave us a better picture of what he looks like when he's healthy. And, and I think I would probably argue that. That is why we hadn't seen that to date. It, it seemed pretty clear that he was at a, <clears throat> a level of health he hadn't been at since very earlier in the year, um, and and I thought he played tremendously. So, no, definitely definitely felt the same going into next year with him. What about you? I'm going to say Jack Cohn. Uh, in the first half, I, I thought to myself, like, he's going to go down as one of the all-time Notre Dame greats. And, and, in fact, I think if Notre Dame had won the game, he would have had the best winning percentage of any Notre Dame starting quarterback. He hit 342 yards and four touchdowns in the first half. Obviously, the second half didn't go the way we would have liked it to, but but I don't really put any of that on Cone, honestly. like I, I thought he did everything we could have asked him to, and, and really I think that extends to the entire season outside of maybe the Cincinnati game that he played with on, on a bum ankle. Um, he leaves 11-2 as a starter, setting Fiesta Bowl records for touchdown passes and, and passing yards, and it just – it frustrates me to to no end seeing fans criticize him because, you know, I'll, I'll admit it when I've talked about on this podcast, I, I heard about this, that this was a possibility uh, right before the Rose Bowl last year. And I was kind of like, why? Um, but he he did really well. I, I have no problem. I thought he gave us everything he could, and, and it was everything we needed him to do this year. Um, I saw fans after the game were just unbearable. Again, this actually started at the beginning of the game. He got announced – and some old hag lady in front of me just put her two middle fingers up. And I just said, seriously, there are kids around. At the game? Yeah, it was pathetic. And, like, we were in the section over from the parents' section. So, I mean, parents saw this, and I was just like, you're a joke, lady. Like, it was – I, anyways. But it was very unfair. I think it got way worse on Twitter afterwards. And, and frankly, that's why we can't have nice things as Notre Dame <laughs> fans because fans yeah. are just absolutely ridiculous. I know the vitriol of – Jack Cohn, it just overall, it really didn't make sense. It's just stupid. It, his it's personality stupid. is so yeah. laid back. He's so nice. It's, it's not like he's Spencer Rattler. Out. Yeah, exactly. Like the team really liked him. And I think maybe part of it is because he didn't develop in the program. Like he's just here for one year. So people felt like more inclined to rip on him. But uh, I'm with you. He went out slinging. It really sucks to see that it ended with a loss. I don't know what his NFL future is going to be. That might be the last time he ever plays like a meaningful football game. So. Yeah, but hey, he'll have some great, great stories to Absolutely. tell uh, to tell clients when he's an analyst at William <laughs> Blair next year. 
I love it. Um, all right, I'll stick with the offense. There's going to be a lot of talk about the problems at receiver, and there should be. Uh, but damn, Lorenzo Styles looks like he's on his way to having an all-time great career. He finished with eight catches, 136 yards, his first touchdown of his career. And he could have had one more if he and Cone uh, connected on that deep post in the second half. Like, Notre Dame desperately needed that, too. Um, and he was just inches away from hauling that in and taking it to the house. Next year, he'll have the chance to become the number one receiver now that Kevin Austin has declared for the NFL. Um, I guess we haven't said that before on the podcast. But yes, Kevin Austin announced on Instagram that he will be declaring for the NFL draft. Not really a huge surprise there. Um, but Lorenzo has already given us plenty of evidence to believe that he's going to thrive as the number one guy immediately. And you know, despite all these issues, like at least having a talent like him who's only going to be a sophomore – you know, that helps the situation a lot. Without a doubt. Uh, yeah, it definitely would have been nice to stay connected on that one play, but I thought he looked great. Um, I, I really liked what Tommy Reese did with him putting him. He was in motion a lot. Um, just, I was hoping it was lulling the defense to sleep. I think it might've on that deep route. Um, unfortunately they didn't connect, but he did have the one for a touchdown obviously as well. Really good to see. And then, you know, hopefully, uh, I mean, I, I was a little bit worried to be totally honest with you when his brother, reclassified to Ohio State that maybe he was thinking about leaving too. But yeah, that was uh, hopefully... right when Kelly left too. Just <laughs> overall really bad yeah. timing on that. But but hopefully that uh that you know that came on Saturday is just more reassurance uh, of a promising future here. But going along with that, I thought the screen game on Saturday was awesome. Uh we hadn't done that in a long time. You often hear about the passing game as an extension of the run game and we didn't really have a run game on Saturday, but that actually did happen. Notre Dame picked up a ton of first downs on screens to Tyree and Diggs. None bigger than the check down to Tyree for 55 yards and, and a touchdown on that second scoring drive. You know, there have been a ton of lamenting about Reese's play calling and Cone's 68 passing attempts, but I really appreciated what he did with the screen game, and, and uh, I'm eager to see what that looks like next year. Without a doubt. And that was the most effective screen game we've seen probably since Will Fuller was at Notre Dame. We used to right. run those tunnel screens to him all the time. And like these little dunk plays that could end up being a huge play for the offense. Uh, my last thing I liked, I'll go to the defensive side of the ball. It might be the single lone bright spot on the defense in this game was Isaiah Foskey. And, and if that's the last time we see him in the blue and gold, like what a way to go out. He finished with five tackles, a sack, and his sixth forced fumble of the season. That's tied for the most in the country. He finished the season with 12 sacks, which is tied for 11th nationally. If he leaves, I totally understand. There are some you know, rumors that he might come back. I, I've seen him projected in the second round, so like, you know, he could come back and work his way up to top 15, top 10 if he continues to improve because he had an incredible year. And not only were his stats solid, but like he was moving the tackle back and disrupting the pocket pretty much every time. He just looks like an NFL player. He does look like Stephon Tua Jr. I really hope we get one more year with him because we really only got this one full season. Last year he played a little bit, but just not the feature edge rusher that he is now. But I thought he played incredible and honestly gave us a chance late when we probably didn't deserve it with that forced fumble on um, Spencer Sanders. So, yeah, here's to you, Isaiah Foskey. Hopefully we see a little bit more. Definitely. Um, I, I'm actually gonna gonna end it with a guy who's kind of on on the reverse of that. Blake Fisher uh, had not played a football Dude, game in four months. What a game! All all he did was stand in there for 68 passing attempts and blocking, and he looked unflappable. 
He's going to be very good, and it was just incredible to see that effort he put forth on a huge stage. It's actually kind of funny. Like, Joe Alt was – the offensive line was huddled up kind of right in front of where my seats were. Joe Alt actually towers over Blake Fisher. Like, Joe Alt is a huge human being. Yeah, Yeah. he is a huge human, human being. And I mean, he also, I thought played well, but, but Blake Fisher just, I could not have been more impressed with his performance that Oklahoma state defense had the most sacks in the country and Notre Dame only let up two on 68 passing attempts on Saturday. Yeah. Fisher gave up one sack. And I think honestly, all things considered, that's pretty incredible. He didn't play for four months and going into this, like in the preview, I said, I was pretty skeptical about how well he'd play just considering the circumstance. I I think Blake is going to be an amazing player, but sitting out for four months and then being in shape to play every single snap on the offense is pretty incredible. All right. It seemed like everything we liked was on the offensive side, except the Isaiah Fosk thing. So now shifting over to what we didn't like is essentially just shifting over to the other side of the ball. Um, Do you want to lead us off here? Yeah. So this is actually the other side of the ball, but uh, just some vintage John Doerr to end his career. Uh, it mean, is fitting that he goes out like his last kick at Notre Dame is just a shank, right? It's like, well, yes, fitting, uh, fitting end to it. his, his missed field goal, just like his entire career was sadly so predictable. Uh, Notre Dame stalls in the red zone. He misses a kick that would have put us up 24 to seven. It goes wide, right? Ended up looming large as the Irish lost the game by just two points. Obviously, game situations are different if he makes that kick, and I'm not ignorant to that fact, as well as the fact that Oklahoma State missed a kick themselves and, and had two terrible turnovers in the red zone. But that was just a vintage John Doerr <laughs> ending. I, I mean, my God. Like, that was so on brand. It was second quarter. Like, he's he does yeah. not make kicks in the second quarter. He, he's nails when it's, like, last he minute. Actually, has he ever made a kick? Did he ever make a kick in the second quarter? I don't know. I I don't know. We got to get research on that after this. But I'm honestly not sure. But you're right. It was very predictable. And then he missed it. And you're like, ah. And that, that's it. That was his only... Uh, field goal yep. chance for the day. So, and that's it. That's that's the end, of John Doerr. So that's pretty upsetting. <laughs> for me, the first thing that just really sticks out to me is the missed tackles. The Notre Dame defense yeah. reverted back to its September self, and they just could not tackle all game. This was a major problem during the first few games of the year, but then they improved on it. They sort of figured it out as the year went on. Um, a couple games where it, it came back a little bit. Like I remember the North Carolina game; they really struggled bringing Sam Howell down. But whatever, Sam Howell is a good player. This was inexcusable. I actually tried to track down like the official total number of missed tackles. That's why I couldn't find it. Might've been too big. I thought PFF had like 15. That would make sense uh, because Pete Sampson of the athletic tweeted that Jalen Warren, the running back himself forced seven missed tackles on just 19 carries. And you know, anyone who watched the game knows it was way too many give credit to Oklahoma state because they switched to 10 personnel, which is four wide receivers and a running back. Um, and that just gave Notre Dame fits for the rest of the game. As Jamie Uyama from Irish Sports Daily pointed out, Oklahoma State ran 33 plays and 10 personnel, and they averaged nine yards per play out of this set. And they didn't go to it until that drive in the second quarter when they ended up missing that field goal, but they realized they had something there and basically just put Notre Dame's linebackers and DBs out in space and were forced to make plays, and they just didn't, like, at all, all a game. And... There's really just no excuse for it. And it almost felt like a Charlie Weiss era game when Notre Dame's defense just could not get the ball carrier down. And you think about how many yards they gained after contact. Like, that's the difference in this game. How many times Notre Dame had him down and they get a first down out of it. Um, that alone just was 
killer to the Notre Dame defense. And, you know, it's the main reason why they gave up so many points. Yeah, it was terrible. And, I mean, like I said, Spencer Sanders sucks, and they made him look amazing. So, um, What did Spencer Sanders have to do for you to, like, give him some props? I mean, because- every ball he threw was a duck. Like, thank, it's not, it's not you know, good skill by his fault that Clarence Lewis can't find, like, the fattest bird in the sky when it's just up <laughs> in the air for 15 seconds. Um, I, I don't know. I don't want to get get in on Clarence Lewis yet. But, <laughs> anyways, uh, I also just – got really annoyed. I mentioned the two terrible turnovers that Oklahoma State had. They were absolute gifts, and Notre Dame couldn't do anything with them. Couldn't even muster a first down. They, they went three and out on both of the drives following the turnovers. I, I think one of those plays, or one of those drives, featured the, uh, the deep ball of Styles that just missed, but, but that bothered me. Like, you get this jolt of life, and you can't even get a first down. Like, what the hell? No, I'm with you too. And I said in the preview, like, I think Notre Dame's going to need a couple breaks. I did not expect them to be like that. I mean, the forced fumble going into the end zone when Drew White just kind of punched it out, that was the luckiest fumble. It goes right into the hands of Ramon Henderson. And you're right, we can't even get a first down out of that. And I know that Notre Dame was backed up, you know, well close to their own end zone. But if if you could just sustain a little bit of a drive, just get the defense off the field for a little bit because they were so gassed by the end of it. And they were counting on Notre Dame's offense to just give them something. And, and they just couldn't for the entire second half up until that, you know, last gas drive when Kevin Austin ends up scoring a touchdown and Oklahoma state is in like deep prevent. So I don't even really count that because they're just basically gifting Notre Dame. They're just playing it so safe, but I'm with you. That was, that was really crushing and just really uncharacteristic of Notre Dame because these times when other teams have given Notre Dame's gifts like uh, Virginia tech, for example, or, or Toledo, when, uh, what's that guy's name? The backup quarterback that scored that touchdown, yeah. where if he had just gone down, that game's over. Um, yeah, Notre Dame, when, when opponents give them these opportunities, they have been able to capitalize for so long. And it was actually kind of weird just seeing them completely fumble at just every opportunity. Yeah, no, it, it really was. It was very unbecoming of, of really who they've been the last five years. Um, you already mentioned this, but the end of half defensive struggles, I I don't know. I don't know why why that's an issue, but it is. It's been a trend all year from Notre Dame. Notre Dame was riding a tidal wave of momentum after going up 28-7 to after Michael Mayer's second touchdown in the game. And then oh, it took Oklahoma State 39 seconds to drive down the field and score a yeah. touchdown. Um, Notre Dame was in their base defense when that drive started. We had Jack Kaiser split out wide covering a wide receiver. Uh, that's inexcusable. Like that's a coaching mistake. And I know we have depth issues at DB, but there is no reason why Jack Heiser should be covering receiver in that situation. And like I said, this has been a problem all year for Notre Dame, Toledo, Cincinnati, Virginia tech and North Carolina, all close games. And each team scored points on their last drive, the first half against Notre Dame and USC also had an opportunity. They were driving and then Keaton Slovis screwed that up. And that touchdown against Cincinnati that happened at the end of the first half proved to be fatal. Um, despite a horrendous first half in that, Notre Dame actually could have gone into it only down 10 nothing, and that could have been the difference maker. This touchdown gives Oklahoma State life, and then in the second half, they come out and immediately go right back down the field and score, and now all of a sudden, that tidal wave of momentum is just gone. Now Notre Dame is only up a touchdown, and Oklahoma State has all of the momentum. And it doesn't feel like a coincidence but I'm not sure what the cause of this is either. Either way, it just needs to be tightened up before next season. Like, this just can't be a theme. Yeah, I mean, if that doesn't happen, I think we blow them out. 
Oh my god, the difference between twenty eight to seven, they come out in the second half I, and they have so I much also don't really know why we didn't try to score after that because we still had a little bit of time and we just took it. And three half. timeouts. Yeah. I know that was uh questionable too. It and you know, we're playing the result here a little bit, but you know, Reese is probably thinking we just put up twenty eight points, like we're gonna keep putting it on him in the second half, but it didn't happen. Yeah. Uh my last thing, I thought the officiating was terrible uh in the passing game. Pass interference, the the lack of pass interference calls was appalling. It could have been called somewhere between five to seven times on Oklahoma State, and we didn't get one whistle. I, I actually let the side judge hear about it at one point, so I was only six rows up. It was after a, a Braden Lindsay play. I'm proud to say I didn't even throw one curse word into this. I was very articulate and just told him <laughs> he was calling an awful game. Uh, but that was just ridiculous that we didn't get a single call. Like Freeman actually said something to the ref at one point, which it clearly took a lot to get him to that point. I think it was after this play. But I just I thought that was a joke. They're, they were literally all over our receivers' backs the entire game. Yeah, coming into this game, we said they're physical. They draw a lot of pass interference penalties because they're so physical, and not a single one was called. Now, I will say, I think the officials were just bad all around, and I think they were just – like consistently back because um, we were kind of gifted that roughing the passer penalty when they went low on cone. That was not a uh, roughing the passer. But then again, like there's so many roughing the passer penalties these days that are called where I'm like, what? And that was definitely one of them. Also, we got gifted that uh, face mask on the center. I mean, it was a face play. mask though. Yeah. And I'm, I can't think of another one where I was like, oh wow, that, that kind of went Notre Dame's favor, but I'm with you. That, Holding on uh, that wasn't called on Braden Lindsay specifically on that double move uh, was brutal. I think that was third down too. Notre Dame ends up having yep. to punt, and that would the drive would have continued. But yeah, it was just a bad showing of officiating um, for that entire game. Really, yeah. Don't put those guys in a big bowl game ever again. My <laughs> God. All right, the last one is you know something we've mentioned before: the depth problems, specifically at corner and wide receiver. And I know, like I said, we've talked about this a lot, but looking at this big picture, like you were at the Cotton Bowl in 2019. I was there as well. We watched Justin Ross torch Dante Vaughn, who came in after Julian Love exited the game. Uh, Was it a shoulder injury or a concussion? Either way, Dante Vaughn comes in and Julian Love was like, he should have won the Thorpe Award that year. He was a great corner, probably one of the best corners Notre Dame has had in recent memory. Actually, he definitely is. But Love goes out, and the drop-off in talent and production between him and Vaughn was just insurmountable, and then Clemson just torched us. So coming out of that game, it was very clear. Notre Dame's got the interior line to make it to the playoff, but they need more depth on the outside. Then, again, Notre Dame plays Alabama in the Rose Bowl in 2021, and it was clear again that Notre Dame needed to improve on the outside. They just don't have the receivers of the DBs to keep up with the elite in college football. And now we're seeing it again against Oklahoma state. I, I get it. Notre Dame was without Kyle Hamilton. We need to keep saying that because it's obviously very important. If he's there in it full healthy, it's, it's very different. But outside of Kyle Hamilton, the situation has actually gotten worse for Notre Dame since that cotton bowl, when it was clear as day to everyone watching, that's what Notre Dame needed to fix. Recruiting at receiver has not been great. Recruiting at defensive back has gotten better, and looking ahead to the 2023 class, it's really improved. But in the short term, like, it's not getting fixed. And it's just really frustrating that we've seen this happen for year over year now. And, 
you know, it's one thing if Alabama and Devontae Smith in particular just run circles around your corners, whatever. He's a Heisman Trophy winner. He's an unbelievable talent. But Tay Martin, like, that's inexcusable. Um, and yeah. I don't know. I don't know what Notre Dame can do in the short term, but it is just maddening that we see this year over year, and it's actually happening to far inferior teams than the teams that we initially saw expose our DBs and wide receivers. Well, yeah, and that's the difference. Like, it was Lawrence to Justin Ross and T. Higgins against a backup. This was some scrub to some freshman against our starting corner, Clarence Lewis. So, yeah, I don't know how that happens, but it was absolutely embarrassing. Yeah. All right. That's pretty much all I got in this game. We went about 35 minutes, 36 minutes. You got anything more to add in the Oklahoma State game before we move on? No, definitely, definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> all right. Okay, moving along. Um, so, obviously, since that game ended on Saturday afternoon, there's been a lot of roster moves, some updates, and some seniors, uh, some younger guys. Here's what we got so far. We'll just run through it a little bit and then share our thoughts specific to roster. So, wide receiver Kevin Austin, he declared for the NFL draft, but um, receiver Braden Lindsey, safety Houston Griffith, um, offensive lineman Josh Lug, and tight end George Takis all announced that they will be returning for the 2022 season. Uh, Pete Sampson of The Athletic also reported that there are many indications that wide receiver Avery Davis and Joe Wilkins will return as well. And uh, I think he said the Adam Alola brothers as well. Oh. Yeah. And Jason too? He said the twins. So, oh. All right. That could be huge. Punter Jay Bramblett announced that he was entering the chance of portal. He went through the senior day ceremony, if I'm not mistaken. So it kind of seemed like he was. They had announced this like a month and a half ago. Right. Um, linebacker Paul Mawala, he's on his way out too. Um, he suffered two just really unfortunate season-ending injuries in back-to-back seasons, so he's going to be looking elsewhere. Um, defensive back Caleb Offord and offensive lineman Quinn Carroll also announced that they have entered the transfer portal and will be leaving. So a lot of movement on the roster. We're still waiting to hear about Isaiah Foskey. Um, it looks like he's going to announce his plans on January 8th, and there's been no update on center Jarrett Patterson on his decision I read somewhere, um, I'm sorry for not remembering who the author was on this, but uh, apparently Patterson got a return to school grade from the NFL Draft Advisory Committee. That's a very important one. I think just more likely for Patterson to come back than Foskey. But all this movement, what sort of stands out to you? Yeah, so I saw that about Patterson too, and I think it was Pete Sampson, but it said he got a return to school grade, but he could go as high as the second round. What center goes in the second round, even if even if they got a good grade? That Lindenbaum guy in Iowa would go pretty high, but I guess yeah. I don't know, center's sort of a unique position in the draft. Yeah, it's not like a I don't tackle. Know. Second round seems pretty high, but um, yeah, I don't know how the gap between like you should return in second round on one player that it just seems way too high and low. Yeah, um, I also did we in, I don't remember if we even talked about this. There was a transfer last week with Kari G. Did we talk about that? Oh, no, we did not mention that. That's a good call. Okay, uh, another freshman defensive back entered the portal last week. Very uh, late ad. It's a last year's class. He will not be staying in South Bend. Uh, what sticks out to me, yeah, obviously Isaiah Foskey's a big one. If you'd asked me a month ago, I would have probably thought he was coming back. Now it's hard to see it just because of how well he played, but we'll see. Um, we should know within the next week or so. And um, I guess, you know, I'm very surprised that Houston Griffith is coming back, given he doesn't do anything at all. But uh, it's a body, at least in the secondary. And Kevin Austin, I know, has caught some—he's caught some flack for entering the draft. Again, I don't really understand people. Like the guy graduated from Notre Dame, had a really tumultuous time at Notre Dame, 
and all in all, played very well this year. Yes, I know the Cincinnati game did not go that well. The Purdue game did not go very well. But outside of that, I thought he played pretty well. So uh, I wish him all the best. He got his degree, and um, yeah, that's pretty much all I got. Yeah, I wasn't surprised at all that Kevin Austin left, just given no. everything he's had to go through at Notre Dame, um, his injury history as well. Like, don't get me wrong, there's definitely there was definitely a lot for him to gain by coming back. That's under the assumption that he's healthy enough and he's eligible to play every single game this season. If if that were the case and that were a guarantee, maybe he does come back. But you know, that's just not how it is in college football and especially at Notre Dame. And um, his injury too is on his foot. Like that can be a nagging injury. So. Totally understand why he left. Now, I'm with you on Foskey. Like, it seems like he kind of wants to come back. Like, just based on what we've read about him, he seems to really enjoy the college experience. He's a pretty laid-back dude um, and just, you know, likes that aspect of it all. But if you're getting, like, second-round grades and you look like an NFL defensive end like he does and he plays like it, it's just really hard for me to see anyone who knows that they're going to be offered that kind of money and then opt to come back. But again, he could improve his stock. Um, We'll wait and see, and we'll obviously provide more updates as we hear them um, help. By the time we release this podcast, maybe we'll hear more. To me, Braden Lindsay coming back is obviously huge. If Avery Davis and Joe Wilkins, all three of them come back, like Avery Davis was obviously very productive for Notre Dame this year. His injury came late in the season, and I think you saw him recently, right? I saw him at the, the Notre Dame Kentucky basketball game. That was early December. He was on crutches then. However, I did see him on the sideline at the Fiesta Bowl, and he was not on crutches. Okay. Yeah, so obviously he's not going to be ready for spring practice. I don't know about Joe Wilkins. It hasn't been announced yet, but he suffered his injury sort of midseason. It was a knee injury, right, with him? Yeah. Yeah, so just from a pure depth standpoint, like it's great that these guys are coming back. Personally, I think Lindsey could really fare well. Next year, I think his best is yet to come. I was also surprised by Houston Griffith, considering that his playing time has decreased as of late, even without Kyle Hamilton. Looking at the snap counts from this last game, um, Ramon Henderson played 91 snaps at safety, and then DJ Brown played 57. He split with Houston Griffith at 39. So interesting, but Notre Dame needs bodies back there. Josh Lugg coming back. Said he'd be open to a position switch. It's going to be a sixth season at Notre Dame. He obviously missed the Fiesta Bowl because of an injury. But I was pretty surprised just because it looks like the tackles are set for Notre Dame. You're probably going to see Blake Fisher at left tackle, Joe Alt at right tackle. You got guys like Andrew Kostovich has pretty much solidified his spot at left guard, or maybe they switch him to right guard and put Rocco Spindler in there. He's not guaranteed a, a starting spot next year. Maybe he just likes being at Notre Dame, but I don't know. That, that information came out like an hour before we started recording this too. Yeah, it's interesting because I guess he was probably recruited by Harry Heastand. He was recruited by Harry Heastand, and that, and and now he's like, I don't know if he actually he, he did not play for him. So it'll be interesting to see him actually play for him. Um, but yeah, there you have it. All right, and that's a good segue to our staff updates because uh, over the past couple of days, multiple reports indicate that former Notre Dame offensive line coach Harry Heastand will replace Jeff Quinn at the same position at Notre Dame. We also found out that wide receiver coach Dell Alexander informed the team that he will not be returning to Notre Dame after the Fiesta Bowl. And also in that same vein, Notre Dame is expected to hire Cincinnati special teams coordinator Brian Mason for the open position at Notre Dame, according to Tom Loy of Irish Illustrated. But we talked a little bit about he stand last week. Personally, after reading that Thamel profile on Marcus Freeman, I thought there's no way they hire he stand just in the way that Thamel talked about Marcus Freeman's coaching approach and 
communicating with players and how he does it different than the old guard. Well, Harry Heastand is the old guard. He might be the oldest guard in his coaching tactics and the way he communicates to players. But as we said last time, probably one of the best offensive line coaches alive right now. So how do you feel about these new hires? I mean, yeah, it'll be interesting. I know people have spoken really highly about Brian Mason. I think I mentioned him on the last pod. He was also the, like, the recruiting coordinator at Cincinnati. So obviously I think that's very much in line with what Marcus wants to do here. He's worked with Marcus in the past. Uh, I think a lot of people are probably happy to see Alexander go. Count me among them. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it, we'll see how he stand goes in, in round two. I mean, listen, they call the guy the godfather for a reason. But like I said in the last pod, I'm just a little bit cautious about his coaching style in 2022. Um, not that I necessarily have any problems with it, but I think that a lot of people probably do. So we'll see how that works. Yeah. From a pure development standpoint, it's hard not to get excited thinking about the talent that he's inherited. I mean, listen, I played for a baseball coach who told me that, uh, if he had a gun, he would shoot us all dead. So if these kids can't handle a little bit of yelling from an <laughs> that coach got fired line, like the next week, though, you well, can't you know use what he him is now? as an he's, example he's, of like a good no, coach. No, I can't. It's, it's actually a great uh, re- rehabilitation story because he's now the dean of students and the tennis coach at my old high school. Wow. Yeah. That's like a movie script. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I will say Harry Heastan coming back is going to make a lot of people really excited. We've already mentioned our concerns. We don't have to go through it all again. But looking at it from the short term, like we already have a ton of talent in the offensive line. You got to imagine they're just going to get better. Brian Mason, good hire. All accounts. He's a great recruiter. Um, It seems like Cincinnati is just basically our minor league coaching staff. We just pick off their best pretty much every year. How about Denbrock going to LSU? I know. Yeah, Mike Denbrock, former Notre Dame um, offensive coordinator, joining Brian Kelly. I'd love to hear that conversation between Kelly and Dan Brock. Like, hey, man, sorry I, I know fired you that at Notre I, Dame. And, and listen, I know that the quarterback that you coached, Tommy Reese, didn't take this job, but do you want it? Yeah. Just, <laughs> I fired you. I had other options I wanted before you. But, like, do you want to come join me? You know what, though? I would, I would be like, you know what? All that doesn't really matter. How much am I getting paid? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, LSU yeah. money is a little bit different down there for their coordinators. Um, oh, small note. Well, I guess it's not small note, but last note. Notre Dame Director of Recruiting Aaron Carney uh, announced today that he is leaving the program to take a position with Zcruit, a scouting and evaluation database. Carney was very well respected at Notre Dame and in the industry. So, you know, sucks to see him leave. But now this is an interesting hire because Director of Recruiting, he's not necessarily a coach on the staff, but obviously this is a very important position especially given the increased emphasis on recruiting under Marcus Freeman. So a lot more moves to come. I think the defensive coordinator position is going to be the biggest one to see where Notre Dame goes from there. Um, And then the wide receiver coach. I think it's going to happen really quickly, honestly. I mean, all this stuff came out today, even though Marcus Freeman said that he was going to putting all of his focus on the game. Like it's clear that he already had thought about this before. So um, it's going to be interesting to follow in the coming weeks. Without a doubt. Um, Yeah. You know, and, and the he stand thing is interesting. Again, just one last point there because I think that there was maybe a thought that he does. He's he's very content not coaching, but you see the talent that Notre Dame has on the offensive line right now. I mean, how could he not get excited about that? So um, I think that maybe that that's probably playing a role there as well. Yeah, Notre Dame has two future first round picks at their both their tackles positions, and they're going to be sophomores. So you get mm-hmm. at least two years out of them. So 
Um, that's about all I got. You got anything more you want to add? Oh, wait, I guess we should mention that uh, right before the festival started, uh, Notre Dame picked up a commitment from four-star safety Peyton Bowen in the class of 2023. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, I, this is sort of a throw-in, but he could be like an absolute game-changer at Notre Dame. He's the number four safety and number 53 overall prospect in the 2023 recruiting class. Uh, that class is insane. Um, we'll talk more about that later, but I did want to mention that. Yeah, no, it's a good one. I mean, it's still not A&M, but, uh, but we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we'll ever get there. I don't know if we're throwing out that kind of money. But um, all nope. right. That'll do it for this episode of Sons of Saturday Irish. Thank you guys for listening. And we're not done. Uh, we will be back next week to do a full season and review. We're going to revisit some of the highs and lows of probably one of the most entertaining seasons uh, in our lifetimes. And we'll officially close the book on the 2021 campaign. Um, in the meantime, please give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Sons of Sat Irish. And we'll talk to you guys again next week. Bye.